Good morning. Those uh, dead air times, those silence times are hard. It feels like an eternity. It was probably not even 30 seconds. Um, but it, I, I would encourage you to, that name that came to mind, that you write it down, that you connect uh, as a way of committing to relationships. It is Palm Sunday, and that, you know, the question is, where are we? Lent is winding down. Uh, we've been hanging out with Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is like this friend that's challenging to be with, but it's always good to be with him, but it's not always easy. And, and today is Palm Sunday, and you, you remember just before Lent started, we covered that passage in Mark 11. So I'm not going to go back and redo that passage, but Good Friday is coming. We're moving to this crucifixion story. Um, the crosswalk video or the, the Station of the Cross video is a great exercise in that. But as we move back to Mark, we're going to focus in today on that Good Friday, that story of the crucifixion uh, from Mark chapter 15, the last steps that Jesus took on his way to the cross. And it really is a changing of gears from Jeremiah. Mark is a very different animal than Jeremiah. And I want to start by reorienting you and reminding you what we talked about before we moved into Jeremiah during Lent. And Mark's whole story, what he's been talking about all along is a Messiah that's prone to misunderstanding. If you remember what we talked about before Lent started, Mark is, is chronicling these stories of Jesus that are very challenging to people, especially the disciples, in understanding and accepting the type of Messiah that Jesus is going to be. In the, the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, it says the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's telling the story of this Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And he launches into this coming of Jesus by telling story after story. Remember, he does these rapid-fire, short little story after story. Uh, about the amazing and sometimes confusing things that Jesus does. He goes on for seven chapters with these stories, talking about the impact that these stories are having on the people as a whole. And then in chapters 8 to 10, he hones in on the disciples and the questions the disciples are having. In chapter 11, we saw that triumphal entry just before Lent started. And what has been happening in that last section, chapters 8 to 11, is Mark is making clear that the people want a king. The people want a king. In chapter 8, Jesus says, okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. They're going to do all these horrible things to me. And Peter says, back off. You are not going to die. You're, you're the coming king. And remember, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Your vision for Messiah is very different than what God's planning. And then in chapter 10, James and John come up and ask for this little tiny favor. Can we sit on your right and on your left when you take your throne? Right? They want a king. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup? Do you guys even get what it means to sit on the right and the left of the Messiah the way I'm going to be the Messiah? And then in chapter 11, where we would typically be today, Jesus is riding in, on, into the, the city on a donkey and the people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. They want a king. But in less than a week, things really go south because Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. Oh, he starts off okay. He goes to the temple. He, he creates an uproar there. He kind of shakes things up, but it goes downhill really fast. And by the time we get to chapter 14 of Mark, he's at the Passover meal. And he's using it to symbolize his own death. He heads out to pray. Judas betrays him. He's arrested. He's tried. He's denied and disowned by Peter, the one who said he would never leave him. 
He's taken to Pilate, and in chapter 15, verse 15, just before the text today, he says, Pilate, wanting to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed, them, handed him over to be crucified. You see, this was not what the people were expecting. They wanted a king the way they thought of king. The one they cried out to Hosanna, to the, king, to the son of David, and, and he's not meeting their expectations. Now, the beautiful thing about our text today, uh, Mark 15, 16 to 41, is I had asked Naya Thiessen to read it and record it, but then we realized we only have nine people in the building today. So guess what we're going to do? We've invited Naya to come along, and I'm going to not touch her microphone any more than I have to, but Naya, you can come up and read the scripture live, <laughs> which is weird. But anyway, welcome, Naya. Thank you. Hi. Um, okay. So the soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed stick spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and they brought Jesus to a place called called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, and but he refused it. When the soldiers nailed him to the cross, they divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced, charge against him. It read, King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of the religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then, at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling out for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine holding it up to him on a reed so he could drink. Wait, he said. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Then the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died. He exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger of Joseph, and Salome. 
They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. Thank you, Naya. It's nice to have another person here, even if it's only one more than we normally have. It's nice to have you in the building. It's a heart-wrenching story, and we, we've heard this crucifixion story many times. We've seen it portrayed in documentaries and movies. We come back to it every year at this time. But I want you to see something about the way that Mark tells the story. If you spend a lot of time reading Mark, you're going to notice something shifts here. There's, there's, a, there's a change. Mark changes his writing style. You know, we, we've said all along as we were going through Mark, he writes these rapid fire stories, story, another story, another story, very little detail, just enough to keep you going. He doesn't want to clog the narrative up. He's just telling story after story after story until we get here. And, and in this pathway to the crucifixion, Mark explains and he, he fleshes out more details than anywhere else in his gospel. And the questions that hit us are, why now? And, and why so many details? He does it multiple times. In verse 16, he says, they took Jesus to the palace. Oh yeah, the name of the palace was the Praetorium. And then in verse 17 to 19, he talks about his wardrobe. It's a purple robe and a crown of thorns. Now, how many times in the Gospel of Mark has Mark described what Jesus was wearing? Never. He, he doesn't do that, really. Verse 21, the name and, and of the guy who picked up the cross, Simon, Simon of Cyrene, where he was from. And then he even names his two sons. Verse 22, he says they're taking him to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. He tells the time of the crucifixion. In, in verse 23, he says he's offered wine and myrrh, but he doesn't drink it. What, what use is that detail? Verse 25 tells the time of the crucifixion. Verse 27, he tells about the two robbers crucified on either side of him. But he doesn't tell any more. The other Gospels will talk about these guys on either side, but they tell kind of the story, the interaction, but not Mark. He just wants you to know there were two guys there. Why? Why all this detail? And why now? Why the change in writing style? And this is where it gets interesting. Because Mark was trying to make sure his readers understood something. He's, he's doing this in a different style. He's telling way more details because he wants them to catch something. This, this road to the cross, what they call the Via Dolorosa, the painful way, it really was for Mark a different kind of triumphal procession. And I, I first came across this idea several years ago in a book by Shane Claiborne called Jesus for president, and I liked it. But sometimes, you know, when you read a book and it just seems too easy, the, 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 the guy's interpretation, I just was a little skeptical because I thought, ah, maybe he's playing kind of fast and loose. But over the past few weeks, I, I decided I'm going to look at that again. And I started digging in and looking at these scholars who, who, who understand Roman history and the Roman culture. And, and it's amazing what goes on here. Uh, they, they all talk about this process called the Roman triumphus. It's, it's um, well, instead of trying to explain it all right now, what I did, because I wanted to do it with some pictures and I knew I couldn't work out the timing, I actually made a video with pictures and a voiceover to explain it to you, and we'll roll that now. To understand Mark's text and this leading up to the crucifixion, you really have to get a grasp of a Roman practice called the triumphus, 
which was it began as a practice as a way to honor military victors, generals who had come back from conquering new territory. Uh, they would approach the government. The government would honor them and and go through this day-long ceremony to elevate them really to for the day, almost to godlike status. By By the time of Jesus, it had become not for military leaders so much, but for the Roman emperor. It was like a coronation process for the emperor. And it started, the first step was to bring the new Caesar into the praetorium and present him to the royal soldiers there. From there, the soldiers would place a purple robe and an olive leaf crown on his head. Um, That would be the next step. And then that would be followed by them loudly paying homage to Caesar as their leader. From that, from that moment, they would begin a royal procession through the streets of Rome uh, with a bull for sacrifice. And there would be someone following behind it who would be carrying the axe that was going to be used to slaughter it. The procession would wind its way through the city and head up to the Capitoline or the Head Hill. It was the site of the temple to Jupiter. So they would wind their way through the city and work their way up to this head hill uh, where the temple of Jupiter was. After that, when they arrived at the temple, Caesar would be offered wine mixed with myrrh. Now, he would refuse to drink this. This was expensive wine. He would refuse to drink it, but he would pull it, pour it out on the altar or on the bull as it was sacrificed. The symbolism in this was that the bull being sacrificed represented the power of the God. And and as he died and the wine was poured out, that the spirit of the God would come in to Caesar. Following that, once that had happened, the bull was sacrificed. Caesar would be flanked by his second and third in command on his right and on his left as a way of presenting them to the people. And then finally, the crowd would acclaim the emperor, and it was usually accompanied by some sort of divine endorsement. Now, most of the time, that kind of endorsement was manufactured. It might be the releasing of doves or, or something that, that would make it look like there was divine endorsement on the emperor. Now, what I want to do now is to work through that process of the triumphos again and just let you see how it plays out in line with what Mark says. Right? Step one, Caesar's brought to the praetorium and presented to the Roman soldiers. But the first thing we see in the text is the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, on the way to the cross, began in front of the soldiers at the praetorium. Now, Caesar, the soldiers would place a purple robe and an olive leaf crown on Caesar. And Mark writes, they put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. The third step for the Caesar is that the soldiers would loudly pay homage to Caesar, their leader in the praetorium courtyard. And Mark tells us, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with the staff and spit on him, and falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. You can see the pattern. Then the royal procession would begin with a bull for sacrifice, followed by someone who was carrying the axe to slaughter it. So there was going to be a sacrifice made to to establish the Caesar. 
and the person carrying the instrument of sacrifice would follow along behind. And what does Mark tell us? A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. The next step for Caesar would be to go to the Capitoline, the head hill, the site of the Temple of Jupiter. And what does Mark say? They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Caesar would be offered wine mixed with myrrh. He would refuse to drink it. He would pour it out as the bull is sacrificed. There was a, this refusal to drink and this pouring out wine, this symbol of blood upon the sacrifice was a powerful moment in the, the empowering of the Caesar. And what does Mark tell us? They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Next, we see for the Caesar that he's flanked by his second and third in command on his right and on his left, presenting them to the people. And Mark adds a detail. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the final affirmation would be that the, cr- the crowd would acclaim the emperor as the only ruler, and it would be accompanied by some sort of divine endorsement. And Mark tells us, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Do you remember the gospel of Mark started in Mark 1.1? The, the good news, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. And here we have this bookending affirmation from the Roman centurion and divine endorsement at the sixth hour Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. You see, you've got to see as you read this text that for Mark, the road to the cross was always a pathway to the coronation of the Messiah. I I don't know how this hits you, but but it, it literally blows me away when you see those two stories told side by side. For Mark, the road to the cross was always a pathway to the coronation of the Messiah. He's giving all the details so that people who knew the story of the Roman coronation would pick up on the fact that what's happening to Jesus is literally an ascension to the throne, the throne of the Messiah. And it looked very different than people expected. He was reminding them that Jesus, their Messiah, was a king who stands in contrast to everything else that they knew. Look again at verse 39. It's where the the centurion says, the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. It doesn't say, and when the centurion saw his power and his regal nature and his strength and heard the people cheering, he said, wow, this must be the son of God. It says, when he saw him cry, when he heard his cry, And he saw how he died. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. See, the contrast, the centurion grasps it, but but the religious leaders don't. The people don't see it. This truly is a king, but he's way different than any king or kingdom that ever has been or ever will be. Before Jesus was, when he was tried by Pilate, you know, Pilate says, are you a king? And he says, you've said that I am. And then 
Jesus says in, in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. He says the nature of his kingdom is radically different. If I had a kingdom like everybody else, my, soldier, my, my, my disciples would fight to have me released, but the way I do things is totally different. And because this kingdom and king is so different from what we see, it leads us in a very different direction than we typically expect to go. And the only way to make sure that we're heading the right way and not just the way our culture or our thinking would expect is to make sure that we're constantly seeing the cross as coronation. Mark 15 is this lighthouse calling us back to the way of Jesus when we get lost in the ocean of our own way of doing things, in the ocean of our own ways of thinking, in the ocean of our own definitions of what power and security and success looks like. You see, we often adopt the way of the world without even realizing we've adopted it. We begin to think about power and leadership and, and victory and success the same way the world does, and we don't even realize that. But the, seeing the cross as a coronation calls us back to this model of Jesus, this contrast. It inspired what, what was an early hymn in the church in Philippians 2, 6-11. Paul writes out this hymn, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, seeing the cross as a coronation does some powerful things for us, some life-changing things for us. And I just want to work through those as we close today. The first thing I think it does is it opens our eyes to the truth. Of all the people at the cross you would expect to recognize Jesus for who he was, the centurion is the last one. He is the model of Roman strength and power. He's the one who has overseen this act of crucifying Jesus and sees it, sees it clearly. I've always wanted to know the rest of his story. You know, what do you do as a Roman centurion when you realize that Jesus truly was the Son of God? And you've just overseen his execution. I think it could shake your life up a little bit, right? Especially if you're one who reports back to Rome, right? What, I would love to hear what happened to that guy when he left the scene. What, how did that impact him? And when we come face to face with Jesus on the cross, it opens our eyes to the truth. It challenges our day to day. It challenges our priorities. We're called back to the way he does things. Everybody who sees Jesus for who he is is confronted with a challenge. Saul, on his road to Damascus, he's going to persecute the church. And it says in Acts 9, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And then it just about killed him when he hears, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Right? Everything changed for Saul when he saw Jesus for who he was. Called everything into question. 
Remember Job, first oldest story that we think of in the Old Testament other than, than creation, right? The story of Job and he loses everything and, he, and he's innocent and his friends come and accuse him and he's defending himself because he's not done anything wrong and he speaks out against God and he says, how can you do this to me? I've done nothing wrong. And then God answers him. And at the end of the book in Job 42.5, Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, when we see this, when we really see Jesus, that the coronation of the Messiah is a crucifixion where he gives his life for the world. We can never look at, when we see that, we can never look at anything the same way again. How many of you knew how to raise children? You knew what to do until you had children, right? You, ha you have all the answers until you actually have one of those little gomers, and then they destroy. You see things very differently when you have that experience. How many of you have been able, you know, you've had really good words for grieving people, and you've consoled them your whole life until grief hit you right in the face? And all of a sudden you realize, I, didn't, I see this totally differently now. The cross as a coronation tells us something about Jesus. And when we see that, everything else should change. It reorients our methods and our goals. How did God choose to save the world to establish Jesus as king of the kingdom? I'm going to go back to that hymn in Philippians. You're probably going to get tired of this today, but it just speaks so accurately to this crucifixion scene. Philippians 2, 5 to 8, who, or 6 to 8, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If this is the way God chooses to bring the Messiah, it makes no sense. Why would you kill him? Why would he die? It's why people struggled so much to understand the kind of Messiah Jesus was. It's why he was misunderstood the whole time. Because this doesn't make sense from our perspective. It doesn't fit the typical way that we want to change the world. Even the mockers passing by in verse 32. Let this Messiah, right? They use the title. This King of Israel, let him come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Show us. This doesn't make sense. He's the Messiah. You know, we, when we want to change the world, we have methods. We have patterns of behavior. We have goals that we set. We seek power. We want to be in charge. We grasp for control. We try to rally. We do the big and the bold, right? We want to make an impact. And far too often, I think we're just adopting North American marketing strategies or North American leadership seminars and trying to force them into the kingdom of God, thinking we're going to do this our way. We're going to build the kingdom of God the way we think it's supposed to happen. And yet the cross as a coronation reorients our methods and our goals. It challenges everything about them. It challenges how we do church. It, it even says that in the middle of a pandemic, when there's 10 people in the building and people all over town watching in their house, the, the kingdom is still advancing forcefully. When it appears that, that hope has been lost for us to gather in the same place for a period of time, it doesn't mean it's over. It changes the way we look at things. It challenges how we assess church and what successful church looks like. Did that look successful? 
bowed his head and he breathed his last and he gave up the ghost? Does that look successful? No, not from our vantage point. It's a common theme throughout the New Testament that the way God does things and the way the world does things are radically different. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, people use this verse, and they talk about spiritual warfare, that we pray and we fight in different ways, and I think that's very true. That's very applicable. But it also has to do with our methods and our goals, that the way we do things is different than the way the world does things. And it even says that... that one of the differences is the way we do things actually has power to get over the stronghold, to demolish it. The sacrificial service and love. We do things differently as followers of a coronated, crucified Messiah. And, and they're more powerful, it says, even though it may look like crucifixion, even though it looks like failure or like weakness. But when you remember the cross as a coronation, it begins to make a little more sense. How can we know if our methods and our goals align with the way of Jesus? Well, there's an attitude that should mark our lives. Once again, in that Psalm in Philippians. But it, the cross's coronation calls for downward mobility. Downward, you know, we hear about upward mobility. Well, the cross calls for downward mobility. Look at that Philippians 2 again. Just look at the, this first few verses, the downward part. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, which is low, he humbled himself lower and became obedient to death lower and even death on a cross, the lowest of all. You see, we see in the example of Jesus a downward mobility. That's the way he moves. There's a great poem. It's actually going to come out in a song this week in the Lent. Um, in the Lent uh, emails so that have a song each day. I think this is the one on Good Friday. And it's a poem set to music by Malcolm Geit called Descent. And he compares the, the, the worldly gods, the nature of, of gods and power in the world with Jesus. I'll just read it to you. He talks about the, the gods and then he says, this is you over and over. They sought to soar into the skies, those classic gods of high renown, for lofty pride aspires to rise. But you came down. You dropped down from the mountain sheer, forsook the eagle for the dove. The other gods demanded fear, but you gave love. And where chiseled marble seemed to freeze their abstract and perfected form, compassion brought you to your knees. Your blood was warm. They called for blood in sacrifice. Their victims on an altar bled when no one else could pay the price. You died instead. They towered above our mortal plane, dismissed this restless flesh with scorn, aloof from birth and death and pain. But you were born. Born to these burdens, born by all, born with us all astride the grave, weak to be with us when we fall and strong to save. 
I love that because it's this contrast between the way the, way the world sees power and strength, the things that we worship, the, the idols that we bow down to, and the way Jesus does things. Weak to be with us when we fall and yet strong to save. See, and if that's what he did, if that was his method, if that was his goal, if he was downwardly mobile, that's what he calls us to. And, and he says our lives should be less about grasping power and more about serving our life should be less about winning. And as a basketball coach, I'm, I'm very good at not winning. So I understand that one, right? Less about winning and more about sacrificing for the gospel. Less about ease and comfort and more about suffering sometimes. And Jesus didn't hide this when he talked to his disciples in his leadership training seminar. We, we talked about that back before Lynn in Mark 10. Jesus called the disciples together. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So here's the question. Is your life oriented toward downward mobility? Do you always have to be right? That's not downward. Do you always have to win? That's not downward. Do you have to control or to fix all the time? That's not downward. Can you let God be God? Let Him be exalted and orient your methods and your goals around this. One last aspect, and this is a challenge. This is the hard one, I think, for all of us. If we see the cross as coronation, it sees rest as surrender to the Father. You see, Jesus gets to that point in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Right? This, this surrender. Rest is not ease. Rest is not the easy way out. Rest is surrender to the Father. And then Luke, Luke gives more details in Mark about the moment of his death. In Luke 23, Mark, or Luke writes, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had, did, when he had said this, he breathed his laugh. Last, what a statement. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Rest at that point was death in a horrible way. But, but rest was in surrender to the Father. It's the living out of the prayer he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus couldn't have gone to this crucified coronation if he didn't trust and surrender to the Father's leading. And that's what the second half of the psalm in Philippians 2 says. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this is the hardest part for us, I, I think, or it is for me. It's the trust and surrender to the Father and viewing that as actual rest. Instead of me making my life better, being rest. Because you see, Christ calls us to follow in his footsteps. He calls us to open our eyes to the truth of who he is. He, he says, once you see me for who I really am, then you've got to let that reorient your methods and your goals, of your understanding of what life is about and what success looks like. 
And, and if you're going to do that, you're going to realize that your life is this process of downward mobility, of making less of yourself while you're building up Jesus and serving and loving those around you, to servanthood, to sacrifice, to giving our lives for another, to, to dying to our own agenda. And, and it, on that journey, it gets scary. There are these garden moments when we have to say, God, this is, this is what I want. But if, if that's not what you want, I'll surrender to your will. Not my will, your will be done. And see, that's the point where rest comes. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But we've got to see that the Messiah was crowned King of Kings as he descended and at the same time ascended to the cross. And from the cross, he went down one more time to the tomb. And next week, we're going to celebrate how that act defeated death for all time. Let's pray. God, we... Um, we must be honest that uh, following you and your way is um, scary. And we don't know where it's going. We don't know what it requires of us. We'd much rather try to, try to control the situation, try to navigate the situation, try to, to bring us to the place we would like to be. And yet we see you in this journey, this Via Dolorosa, this journey to the cross. We see you surrendering everything to follow, surrender to the will of the Father for us. And we ask God that the great love we see in your action for us would fill us and overwhelm us and remake us and renew us. That this love that you showed us by your surrender to the Father would completely transform who we are and empower us to follow you wherever you lead, to reorient our goals and our methods to, to move downward in service and sacrifice to the world around us. And ultimately, God, to rest in you and your will alone. Lead us, empower us, strengthen us. And as we enter this week of, of remembering these dark days, I do pray that you will help us to understand the deep love that led you to the cross. And as we return next Sunday to celebrate, give us the joy of, and life from your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. This uh, last week of Lent, this Holy Week, right before we celebrate the resurrection, is a dark time because, you know what, we, we feel it. Uh, we're, we're thinking about Jesus on his way to the cross. We're thinking about the darkness of the tomb. We're thinking about the suffering. And we also feel that. I know so many of you are grieving and hurting and, and carrying heavy heavy burdens, whether it be illness or your family or whatever it may be. And the question is, how could Jesus remain faithful in this darkness, in this struggle? How could he keep surrendered and, and seeking what the Father wanted? And I, and I want to point you back to <coughs> excuse me, the fact that he had a bigger mission than even the cross. The cross was a means to an end. 
And that, that day, three years before, he walked into a synagogue in Nazareth and he picked up a scroll and he read about his mission from Isaiah 61. I want to leave you with those words because as you go through the darkness of the week, you have to realize what God is doing long term. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And then he talks about us. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for this display of his splendor. Remember this week as we go through the darkness, as you're buried in the struggle, as you wonder, not my will, but your will. Can I even say that? That where we're heading is God is planting oaks of righteousness for the display of his splendor when he will make all things new. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.